They should win the game. They get a point. We, we score a perfectly good goal. Make it 2-0. Game's done, done dusted. We win the game. Fish was cost us two points today. It's standard. 10 past 10. Most of the children are probably in bed, but the, these, these boys are fucking mentality giants. It's unbelievable. And Shakiri hasn't he the funniest shape. He's a little chunky fella. They'll fight for the tree. The joke. Gone about far this, far that. Help the officials out. Clearly they need help. Clearly we play in the Premier League. It's a joke. It's a joke. Mahatma Gandhi, Mother Teresa and Martin Luther King move over for there's a new beacon of peace and hope in town and his name is Jordan Henderson. Hello and welcome to this week's Tree of the Bag podcast. How are you lads? Hey, Kevin. Okay. Lads, Kevin, what a way to start the show. Like, I literally did not know where that was going after you said Mahatma Gandhi. <laughs> um... So a little later on um, in part two, we'll be chatting to BBC journalist Patrick Jennings um, about Kosovo, who are on the periphery of Euro 2020 qualification with a huge matchup against the Czech Republic this Thursday night. Um, to put that into perspective, their first com- competitive match was in 2016 um, and their top appearance maker is Amir Romani with um, just 27 games under his belt thus far. Um, but first... We'll have to talk about Liverpool and Man City, which probably lived up lived up to the, the billing. It was a pretty entertaining game. Um, there was some massive VAR controversy sprinkled in, um, and then that all overflowed into what's usually um, an uneventful international break with Raheem Sterling seeking revenge against um, Joe Gomez over the um, over the foosball table in, in St George's Park, um, which needed Jordan Henderson to step in as peacemaker there, despite not even being in the squad at the moment um, due to a suspension. So before uh, before we unpack that part of of, of the week, um, I think we'll stick to the game. Um, we got you, Phil. Unfortunately, there's no way to approach the game really without having to talk about VAR um, as the first goal hinged on what looked like a penalty, um, a handball and a penalty, but has been deemed neither. Um, and the play was let flow, leading to Fabino's opener. Um, so I suppose without getting into another scientific breakdown of, of what VAR is and what it isn't, what were your thoughts on on the incident? Yeah, like you said, like it feels like every week we're we're breaking something down, like we're breaking down the Zapruder tapes about Kennedy, um, and we're looking like frame by frame by frame. Um, what I found most most frustrating about it was almost immediately after the decision was made, or at least as quickly as feasible. Uh, the Premier League tweeted out reasoning, or it was the professional match officials, whatever, one of the bodies tweeted out reasoning, which said that um, Trent's arm was not in an unnatural position, um, and therefore it was deemed not to be a penalty. Um, Mark Lattenberg, the, the, the following day, or maybe it was later on on Sunday, with kind of more um, clarity and, and more time to look at it, said that actually the reason, he agreed that it wasn't going to be a penalty, but the reason he he proposed was that Bernardo Silva had handled it and under the new rules regardless of uh, intent Bernardo Silva's handball negated Trent's um, so I suppose I'm just a little annoyed that there's not a clear thing that I can wave in the face of any Man City fan who tries to tell me that there should have been a penalty um, the consensus that seems to have been reached by the refereeing gang um, Clattenburg, Oliver, Var, is that it wasn't a penalty um, but they seem to kind of veer off on their reasonings as to why and um, to the, even to the naked eye it looked pretty dodgy and <laughs> um, but like by, by the letter of that new law it does look like Bernardo Silva's handball negated Trent's 
but then what um why wasn't the play then stopped once Trent handled the ball because it's nearly like two fouls um I so yeah <laughs> we're back to the same old position as we are every week on the podcast Kev where we're trying to unpack VAR and apply logic I think to an illogical situation I would just like it's not a penalty like there is no if if butts or maybes on this it's not a penalty because it's like you said Phil going by the rules Bernardo Silva handles the ball so it's therefore if an attacking player handles the ball in the box and you know it, it's it, it leads to a goal or a goal scoring opportunity of some kind then it's automatically a free kick uh, yeah. to the to, to the you know to, to the defending side so simply put there's no real debate about it. Now, I would say that, like, you know, the naked eye would never have... I don't think the naked eye would, would have picked up that um, that handball by Silva. But I don't think the naked eye would have picked up the handball by um, by Alex- Alexander-Arnold either. Maybe they would, I don't know. But... Um, or at least if the naked eye did pick it up, it, it happened so quickly that I don't think any referee without VAR would have given it, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, th- I thought it was a, a big. I thought it was a little bit of a big hullabaloo over nothing. Um, at, in real time, because first of all, the commentary or, or the referees or nobody goes out of their way to try and explain there and then what the decision was, and we have to wait until the game is over to kind of decipher anything. At the time, I thought it was because Silva's hand had touched the ball first. Um, that kind of negated Trent, Trent Alexander-Arnold's and then, like Phil said, the the referee uh, group came out and basically said it wasn't a handball from anyone, um, which led me to believe did did the referee play the greatest advantage of all time um, by just not blowing at all, um, yeah. which I don't think was the case. Um, and then another part of me thought, did they, especially after I think it was more controversy on on Saturday, did the the referees kind of quietly get together and maybe someone um, in the VAR machine kind of pulled the plug because uh, for this for this game because the decision was made unbelievably quick um, and the same was made for Mohamed um, Salah's um, goal where he was deemed onside and I think he was to be fair he was onside but the decision was made uh, quicker than what other um, offside rulings have been made um, and it was an absolutely egregious one um, in the Sheffield United and Spurs game um, on Saturday which lasted three or four minutes. Um, so I wonder did it just said let's we've had too much trouble VAR isn't going ahead today we're going to we're going to uh, shut down uh, the computer here and uh, pretend um, pretend it doesn't exist. Um, I suppose Phil Forgetting VAR for the moment, um, on the field Liverpool played quite a quite a good game. Um, who stood out for you? I mean, for me, um, and uh, he he they get two players that get picked on every time they get have a big game. But for me, whenever Liverpool play, say a top four side or a big Champions League game, these guys step up. Um, which was Henderson and and Wijnaldum. Yeah, I I completely agree. I thought the whole midfield was great. I mean. It nearly goes without saying at the minute that Fabinho was great. He just seemed to be playing at a level um, that you can just kind of expect consistent excellence. But Henderson and especially Wijnaldum were two players who were kind of been struggling a little bit to affect games 
in the last couple of weeks. Um, maybe slightly unfair on Henderson, uh, but Wijnaldum definitely was was struggling a small bit in the last couple of weeks. But like you said, he, he just has this knack in big games to kind of grow up to the level of the game and um, and really kind of take it by the scruff. And he, he has this incredible ability where he'll look like he's in a bit of bother and there might be two or three players around him. And all of a sudden, he'll send them to the paper and he'll be gone the other way with the ball. And he, like he, he's got brilliant technical qualities that somehow disappear if he's playing a side like fifth or lower. But when it comes to the real crunch, um, and I suppose it's a great quality to have, but he, he is one of Liverpool's true big game players. And I think he covered the most distance of any Liverpool player, um, 97% pass accuracy and seven ball recoveries. Um, I thought he I thought he was spectacular. I thought Henderson was great. I thought Fabinho was brilliant as well. Um, I think after the first... It's going to sound weird, right? I watched the first 13 minutes back this morning um, to the point where Liverpool went 2-0 up. And after that point is when the midfield actually got a grip on the game. <laughs> City were... Um, aside from Liverpool's two goals, City really grew into themselves. And when I, when I watched the match live, I thought the first five minutes was terrifying. When I watched it back this morning, I actually think they played their best stuff nearly the whole game from five to 13 minutes. They just passed through Liverpool so easily um, and, and ended up in some dangerous positions. But from the point the Liverpool went 2-0 up, I really thought the midfield got a handle on things. And that's when I, I thought they started running the game. Yeah, I, I do you know what? Just to go back to it, lads, I mean, like, the frustrating thing about about VAR and, and, and all that hullabaloo was that it actually kind of distracted from the fact yeah. that Liverpool steamrolled City again. Um, and it, it nearly served to show the gulf. Be- and I, I know it's, I mean, maybe the gulf is not the correct word to use, but certainly the gap between two sides at the minute. Now, I know City are kind of like a little bit all at sea in terms of absences, key absences in defence and, and maybe like players that are are so sort of flaky at times. But, you know, like Liverpool basically, I've been saying this since the start, I mean, Liverpool are going to win the league this year. I, I, I know there's a long way to go, but Liverpool are going to win the league this year without a doubt, in my opinion. Um, and that just that just summed it up, really. The performance just summed it up. I don't think um, City, even... even though, I'll tell you one thing. I thought Raheem Sterling was absolutely fantastic um, for the majority of the game. Uh, it was, you know, he, he was... He was kind of like an inspirational force in, in a way, and like he was trying to drag them over the line by himself as such. But And I thought he had... Like Alexander Arnold is an incredible player, but um, he had him in toast really for a lot of the game. Um, he just really couldn't get near him. Um, there was a couple of moments where this this thing really really bugs me, lads. I don't know if it, if it, if it's a thing that you pick up on, but do you know when when like attackers are getting to the byline and basically this whole shepherding the ball out of play from defenders, they essentially obstruct and foul a, a player. Over the over the touchline, and it yeah. it's just never officiated upon, and it drives me insane. Like there was two moments where where Sterling was, I think, shoved over the line, clearly shoved over the line, and it wasn't officiated on. You're just like, if that happens anywhere else on the pitch, it's a free kick. I don't really understand the difference in in, in how that's not a, a foul. But anyway, I digress. Um, basically. Barring Sterling's, you know, really, really excellent showing. I thought Liverpool were just hugely good value for money. 
um, in terms of the win. Um, yeah, and they just I don't think they'll be stopped. On City there, um, and there was, there was a kind of an overarching um, narrative after the game that City played had played well, and I was I kind of felt that that wasn't exactly true. I mean, they had a lot, especially um, in the first kind of 10, 15 minutes, and then in the last 10, 15 minutes, um, they had a couple of chances, um, and they were putting piling a lot of pressure on Liverpool. But I, I don't know, I, I, I just didn't think that they had a hugely great game. Um, aside from Sterling, who even himself, he was very busy and he was clearly um, hugely up for it and it was probably buoyed on by, by the booze from the crowd. Um, it was definitely his best game for, for City against Liverpool since since he left. Um, but again, his his decision-making at times was let him down. Um, I think he squared a ball for, might have been Bernardo Silva um, in the box when he probably should have taken it on himself. Um, but I thought City carried a lot of passengers, um, especially um, Rodri and Gadungan weren't hugely involved. Um, De Bruyne was kind of marooned out wide um, and wasn't hugely involved either. Um, and I, I think he had one unbelievable chance, um, Sergio Aguero, where the ball was crossed. Um, and it looked like he just had to keep his foot straight, and he would have got some contact on it, uh, and possibly got it got it on target. Um, mm. He kind of he kind of went inside footed, and the ball just flipped kind of past his foot. Um, so that's one he'd want back again. Um, but I think definitely what everyone is saying, and I had to enjoy um, Gary Neville. I, I love Gary Neville when he's commenting on a game that has a really bad fullback, because his disapproval is just. Unbelievable, um, and we had this with Angelino, who, in fairness to him, he going forward, he he seemed pretty good, but positionally he was all over the shop um, yeah. at left back against Salah, um, and you could just feel Neville's disdain just boiling up inside every time um, the full back was out of position or, or did something wrong. Um, but I, I think you can forgive that, though, Kev. Do you you can forgive somebody like that to be yeah. out of position, and, and Neville should know better as well as that. It takes a long time, um, and maybe longer than others for some players that to to get to to know um, Guardiola's system. Do you know what I mean? It's an incredibly, it can be very complicated mm. um, to to get to, to grips with. So I mean, you, like, can, you, yeah. can, you can kind of, you can understand that to a certain degree. It was only his fifth Premier mm. League game, and yeah, yeah. Like I mean, I I I heard I can't remember where I read it. It was, it was a really good point that so um, Mendy who Pep doesn't really fancy, uh, is really, really good going forward and not that great going backwards. Um, Angelino is the exact same thing, except less experienced and probably yeah. not as good going forward. So if you're going to play an, a, a, yeah. a defensively weak attacking fullback, you may as well play the one who's probably better going forward. But it, it, it felt a little weird. But um, Yeah, but but also, Phil, you, you've, got, you've got the fact that Mendy apparently isn't able to play two games in yeah. in uh, in a row, so yeah. Guardiola played him. Guardiola played him against Atlanta uh, yeah. to forego the, the opportunity to play uh, to play him against Liverpool, which doesn't make sense to me. Like he nearly Feels kind weird, of threw, yeah, yeah he, he threw Angelino underneath the bus, really. Like, um, yeah. like I assume he trusts the kid, but if he's only played five Premier League games, uh, and yeah, like I heard that this whole, I think it was Sammy Lee, and um, was talking about how Sammy Lee covers City for for um, 
the Athletic. Mm. He was saying that, you know, they didn't want to play Joao Cancelo because he, you know, was Anfield and, and he might not have been ready for it. But, like, he plays Akilino then, who's played five, five Premier League games and <coughs> has lit... Do you know what I mean? It, it just doesn't make yeah. sense. And maybe maybe he didn't want to play, you know, both fullbacks in that scenario. But it ends up... It, it ends up costing him the game, like... Do you know what I mean? It, 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 like, him second-guessing or overplaying the Anfield factor or all this, like, it ends... Pep is at fault for this. It's not... In my opinion, it's not the players. Like, it's it's his it's his fault because he's put these players into the situation where, essentially, they're not ready. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I know he's kind of been forced into it to a certain degree with various injuries and that, but, yeah, I, I think... Um, you know, and, and this whole sort of being really sort of condescending to officials and and even maybe possibly to his own team just feels like, you know, a real passing of the buck um, to me. And, and you know, I rare, you rarely, rarely see, and I, I'm a huge advocate of, of Pep Guardiola. I'm sure he's he's aware of that and, and you know, approves of me being an advocate of him. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but uh, like... At the same time, it just he never really seems to front up when it's when it's his issue. Um, so yeah, it's it's that's that's kind of a disappointing aspect to him to his personality, I suppose. Like, uh, like also the fact that he's absolutely mental on the touchline does bring immense entertainment. But yeah, swings and roundabouts. Like I don't know, I, it kind of struck me like you're saying in the way Pep was acting on the touchline. Uh, funny as it was, like, I got laughed my head off, but. If I'm a player looking for guidance from mm. that man who's supposed to be the best manager in the world and who, like, unquestionably is a genius and who has had a massive impact on how football is played, like, City are a fantastic side. Pep is a, a fantastic manager. What they did last season in winning the league, I'm not sure has actually gotten proper credit in, like, winning every game basically from February on to the end of the season. Mm. So, like, City very obviously love a challenge and a puzzle to solve. I'm not sure if Pep and City really front up that well to adversity. No, so like, completely right. Like you see it where they went out of the Champions League over the last couple of years. Uh, Monaco got at them. Liverpool got at them. The Spurs game was a mad one that was full of adversity, but City didn't respond brilliantly to it. Whereas like, okay, go out there, lads, and Southampton are going to put it up to you for 60 minutes. But you know, if you keep doing your thing, you're going to win. That's sort of a challenge. Absolutely. But, you know, you you feel like you're hard done by not to get two penalties. You're after conceding two goals in 13 minutes against your biggest rivals. You're not really playing that well. That sort of adversity, I'm not sure how well Pep and City have fronted up to it. Mm. Um, and I, I just, I just, it, it was something that struck me yesterday because like at the end of last season, I thought City were really mentally strong for how they came out every week. And regardless of Liverpool scoring mad last-minute winners, they kept just getting it done. Um, but... Actually, when it comes down to like the real kind of gut check moments, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not no, sure. No, I, I, I agree, Phil. I agree, and I think um, now this is kind of maybe a bit of a hot take, but I think you, you could be witnessing a little bit of a of a Pep Guardiola's Man City unraveling here. Like, I mean, if you go back to if you go back to his Barcelona stint, I mean, it was in the fourth year. Uh, that that a kind of it was starting to come undone at, at at Barcelona, and obviously like he'd finished and he needed to recharge then his batteries after that point. Um, like I think uh, you you get the same kind of feeling like you know right now 
is that is that what's happening here? Because like it'll be interesting to see the next couple of months in in terms of in terms of how City continue being nine points behind. Like, will there be like a relentless chase of of, of Liverpool in the way they they did it last year, or or will they continue to kind of like you know lose the odd game here and there? Uh, it'll be interesting to see. And obviously they had a couple of injuries, but uh, coming out of it, I kind of wondered how much does. Pep trust his squad because he only made one change, um, which was Jesus on for Aguero. Um, he doesn't trust Mendy, and like whether Mendy can play two games in a row or not, or uh, remain. You know, there's kind of rumours that um, that his knees are gone at this point of his career. Um, but like he's playing Fernandinho at centre back, um, who you know he's a fantastic player, but he's a central midfielder at the end of the day, um, and relying on him to kind of step into say like what Javier Mascarano did um for a couple of years in Barcelona I mean in the Premier League it's it's I don't think it's going to work as well as it has and especially with Nicolas Otamendi who obviously we can criticize how his mistakes but he, you know he's he's a highly experienced um center back who's sitting yeah. on the bench it doesn't look like he has much um faith in João Cancelo and I don't really buy that excuse that he wouldn't have been prepared for Anfield. Like he's played for Juventus, uh, Inter Milan, and and Valencia. Like he's obviously mm-hmm. faced into some some fairly um, tough uh, grounds over the years. Like he he's not uh, just a kid coming off um the academy. Um, Riyad Mahrez didn't come on. Phil Foden didn't come on. So I just kind of started to wonder: Does whereas if you contrast it with Liverpool you know like it looks like Klopp at the moment could pluck anyone out of the bench he could he could pluck the physio and he'd, he'd come on and do a job for him like does does yeah. does man city have does pep have um the squad is it kind of unraveling to a point where he's looking at his options from the bench and he doesn't see where he can get a where he can get an impact like i completely agree like there's two there's two ways to read what pep did in only making one sub it's a, he was happy with how the game was going, and he was he was three 0 down when he made the sub. Or B, he doesn't trust his team and the, or his bench and his squad. There's no way that he could have been happy with how that game was going. City had one shot on target in the second half, and it was Bernardo Silva's goal. So they weren't mm. really creating anything. Uh, and as the game ticked by, like you said, uh, Mares on the bench, the best player he's ever coached apparently, Phil Foden on the bench. If you're looking for a change <clears throat> in attack, and you're coming up dry. With your record signing Mara's on the bench, um, like you said, like sixty, Cancelo was sixty million, I think, as well. Mendy in the stand, like it was a hundred million worth of fullbacks not used by choice yesterday. It's not like City are threadbare, um, and like they're relying, like you said, on academy kids. They're, ex- they've got expensive players for every position. Okay, Foden as an exception, um, so all of a sudden, despite having such an expensively assembled squad, it kind of looks like City's recruitment might have been slightly wonky outside of those kind of first 12 players. Injuries mm. permitting, obviously. But. Mm. No, I mean, and, and as well, guys, like you have to you have to take into account as well, like uh, there, there may be, there may be some, some credibility to the criticism in terms of like, does Pep bring through young players? I mean, mm. like, Phil Foden seems to be kind of wasted now at the minute. Um, like I know, I know City have an embarrassment of riches, so that that's you know certainly mitigating circumstances there. You, you know, so but but 
there's a kid, I think, Eric Garcia, um, I yeah. think is his name, and, and he's supposed to be really, really highly rated at City um, from an academy point of view. Um, I mean, do you, why, why, why take, why put Fernandinho back there when you know he's not a centre half? Now, he performs admirably, you know, mm. but why not put a centre half in there? At least you're putting him inside what is supposed to be an experienced centre half and not a Mendy. You know, so it just seems like it does. It does basically say that you know he doesn't trust that squad, or he do, and he certainly doesn't seem to trust younger players, um, which is which is really surprising because younger players are are so much more easily molded than than sort of grizzled mm. veterans or or even players in their late twenties. So it just yeah, I don't really get it. And Phil, it's like you said as well, the whole that you don't buy the whole you know Cancelo's not ready for Anfield. I think that also lends um, credibility to the fact that that Guardiola does seem to shit the togs every time it comes to playing at Anfield, um, which is just really weird. Um, but yeah, yeah, it was definitely, uh, it was an interesting day's football. Um, and it's, it's been an interesting week since then. Um, like this Raheem Sterling thing, I guess, um, because like he had a night to sleep on it. So could you imagine what was going through his head to think that it was possibly a good idea? To arrive into a training centre and go straight for for Joe Gomez, like it's reported he has. Um, Keen, I know you've got Sterling on board over there um, at yeah. Stat Sports. Um, yeah. I hope you had the yoke on him to get some of the stats from this bust up. Um, are, are you still Team Raheem or, or should you have got Gomez? <laughs> I'm very much Team Raheem, Kev. Yeah. <laughs> um, I assume Joe Gomez slagged the video and the TV ad that that Raheem and Alex Oxley Chamberlain made, and Raheem was just basically <laughs> just just going back at him, had our backs. You know, I get that. Um, no, I thought it was yeah, like it was kind of it was an annoyance, and um, you know, professionally, I suppose for for us today it was that. You know, kind of uh, the news breaking last night that he'd been sus- well sus- dropped, I suppose, from mm. from the England for the first England game. So that kind of put a span on our works to 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 a certain degree. But I just thought it was just really like the whole thing just kind of was just so weird to me. Mm-hmm. Like the the entirety of it. Like like okay, fair enough. The two lads got into it. Apparently, they're thick as thieves, Gomez and Sterling, um, which made it even stranger. But um, yeah, like. The news breaking last night was there was a huge reaction to it. Like it was mm. huge, and I was like, "Why is this huge? It's just like two lads having a barney at football, like you know, in training. It mm. happens all the time." I um, go on, I sorry. saw I saw um, it originally came from Paul Joyce. I the first thing yeah. I did was to check was this uh, was this the real Paul Joyce because I was like, <laughs> yeah, is, is this actually <laughs> happening? Yeah, it was, yeah, Paul Joyce, like, you know, literally, like, could tweet one letter and he'd get about, like, 4,000 retweets. And, yeah, man is reliable. Uh, Yeah, it was, it's just a really strange one because the the reaction was just a huge sort of furore over it. Um, And I can kind of, I can kind of get it to a certain degree in terms of, like, how it would have been perceived that Sterling was treated um, over such a, over such a, innocuous kind of incident I suppose and um, because it does happen all the time in professional football but also I do kind of understand you know the the, the, the kind of flip side to that is that basically Southgate was was 
stamping his authority and saying, look, I don't care who you are, you don't mess with Team Unity. Um, now, in saying that, I'd have to go back to my previous point. It's like these things happen all the time. Southgate knows that. You know, and okay, he's going to say, oh, well, look, I, I don't want my team being, I don't want my squad being affected by by cliques and by, by you know, by rivalries. But I think that's a real weird, weird, weak excuse. You know, I, I just, I, I feel like, and I'm not just saying this because Raheem Sterling works with us and, and you know, he's, he's an investor in the company, but it just feels like it, he was unnecessarily singled out. That That would be my kind of two cents on it. No, I was just going to say, just to kind of echo Kane's point, it, it just feels almost like the FA acknowledging it and making it official fanned the flames of it even more. I mean, I know the report came out uh, ahead of it, but you can kind of minimise it. Um, you can rest Sterling for for the first game pretty easily and just say, listen, like Raheem's not being considered or he's picked up a little bit of a niggle in training. Just tell a bit of a white lie. Don't play him. Deal with it exactly the same way, but just don't deal with it publicly. Um, because like Keane says, this happens all the time. Now, fair enough, the specifics of it might be slightly weird. It wasn't like a bad tackle in training that got people going or whatever. But it just feels weird how public they've been happy to make it when you'd think that they'd actually be trying to do the opposite. Um, mm. All I want to know is who's England's Stephen Ward, who has the WhatsApp audio, and when are we <laughs> yeah, going to hear yeah. it? Yeah. To be fair, lads, j- just to, to kind of come back on that, I, I suppose... It's crisis management 101. It's like you get ahead of you get ahead of the news breaking, right? And I can kind of understand. Do you know what I mean? Like if if think about if they hadn't have come out and 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 disciplined them, then it would have broke anyway, and you know there would have been a kind of in-team scandal. So I do see that point of view as well. Um, but yeah, I think if it just had have come out naturally. I think people would have been like, look, it happens all the time. Like, do you know what I mean? I think, yeah, I don't think it would have been a big deal. It, it certainly wouldn't have been as big a deal as it is now, in my opinion. My favourite part um, of the whole thing, um, and for a while it was this picture going around of, of Joe Gomez with a scratch on his face, but my, my favourite part is the role Jordan Henderson has been perceived to play in this um, and I was watching Sky Sports News earlier on and they had um, two reporters outside um, the training ground basically piping Henderson up to the max where I wouldn't be surprised if he comes out with a knighthood when the likely thing he did was get on WhatsApp or whatever and told the two lads to cop the fuck on because <laughs> we have a couple of games to play. I mean, Jordan Henderson has maximised this um, this whole instant into becoming like a leader in chief in England um, and and a great mitigator um, for for peace and war. I think it's absolutely brilliant, and that's been picked up by a lot of Liverpool fans now. Obviously, he's kind of been a been a magnet for for criticism over the years. Mm. The fact that he, um, I, I'd be surprised if he did more than, than give him a give him a, a, a something over WhatsApp and just told him to cop on. Mm. I love that Jordan Henderson, like, in terms of his Liverpool career, has basically, like, got heroic status at the minute. Like, it's it's just, <laughs> it's an incredible story, though, isn't it? Like, because he was yeah. such a malign presence at Anfield for so long. And even up until maybe, like, the end, no, the, sorry, the start of last season, he was still heavily criticised. Mm. 
I think it was kind of like what what was the game where um was it the Champions League final where where it was his dad um yeah. you know yeah. the embrace with his dad and I think that was just sort of like ever since then which understandably I suppose like they seem to have taken him kind of to their hearts really like you guys seem to have anyway um <laughs> which is which is nice like you know because he seems like a fairly decent lad he just seems he just seems like a normal sound head screwed on kind of fella. I mean, like even still, like he he's definitely much more beloved than he was before. But even still, like all it took was a couple of bad performances, and you've got shitheads like me and Kev coming on the internet and saying Henderson's not worth a shite and he should be shagged <laughs> yeah, off. Yeah. So yeah. like he's he's still not like taken to the hearts as much as or as quickly as other players. But he de- he's definitely after kind of engendering himself now. Um, I think that when he moved from the six back to the eight, when he played against Southampton and um, like moved into the kind of number eight position, I think that was the start of it. But uh, this is surely just going to cement him now as all their full legend. And like Kev's mentioned him in the same breath as Mahatma Gandhi and Mother Teresa. I mean, <laughs> well, this is this. This is this. Um, so let's move on uh, quickly. The the Irish team has been named, um, or the squad has been named ahead of the uh, absolutely massive game against Denmark next week um, we also have a friendly with New Zealand um, on Thursday night which you'd imagine would be used to blood some of the, the younger players um, and the players in and out of the squad um, but uh, let's focus on the Denmark game because the possible starting 11 um, it's become kind of, kind of quite interesting now with Coleman suspended um, and Connolly rule out with injury um, Kieran Clark has played himself into contention with Newcastle over the past few weeks um, Robbie Brady has suddenly appeared back in the fold as well. Phil, how do you think Ireland will shape up here? So, basically all the way through the campaign, I've been wanting Mick to do three at the back and in my head and publicly, or like on Twitter, saying I don't think he will. And Keane, to his absolute credit, before the Swiss game, King put put his neck on the line and said that they were going to play three at the back. It lasted yeah. about a half an hour, but now that he's done it, <laughs> I think he might actually do it again. Um, especially with Coleman being out, it just feels like a natural chance to do it. Um, Clark has been playing in the back three for Newcastle. It could add to his, or could work to his advantage. He could be straight into the team. So I think it could be Clark, Egan, Duffy across the back uh, with Stevens and Doherty in the uh, wing back positions. I think he might go for his kind of now traditional midfield of Whelan, Hendrick, and Horahan, possibly with Brown in for one of the two lads. And I think he might go uh, Robinson and McGoldrick up top. Um, there's like obviously that's no McLean and he really likes McLean um, it's kind of half hope and half thinking I think it's a halfway realistic team that he could pick but also probably allow him back he's going to pick another two, one or two McCarthy favourites that's that's how I'd go mm-hmm. it's funny lads I, I actually think um, he's going to go ultra conservative I think he's mm. going to go 4-5-1 um, I, I think a manager like McCarthy, when his back is against the wall, I don't think he'll go for it. I think he'll hedge his bets. I think he'll pack the midfield. I think he'll play McGoldrick up top. And I think that the back four kind of picks itself bar maybe the centre half alongside Duffy. So I think so I think you'll have probably a back four of Stevens. I think It'll be either Clark or Long, Duffy, and then Doherty at right back. Egan injured or anything? Or sorry, who, discount? sorry, is it sorry Egan? 
Egan and Egan and Duffy. Am I right? Egan and Duffy. Sorry, yeah. yes. E- Egan and Duffy. Um, and I think in the middle, I think he'll go. I think he'll play Whelan. I wouldn't play Whelan, but I think he'll play Whelan. Um, and I'd say Hurrahan will. Hurrahan. I think Hurrahan will start somewhere. Um, I don't think there'll be like massive changes. I don't think you'll see anybody really. You certainly won't see a Troy Pirate starting. Um, I think. Conley had he been fit, I think he might have tried to shoehorn him in on maybe the left or the right, um, but I don't think he'd, he'd have played him up top. But I think the fact that Conley is now out means he'll go four five one. Yeah, I, I, in terms of personnel, I'd agree with both of you. Like, I, I don't think Josh Cullen will be involved. I don't think O'Dowd. No. Um, I don't think Byrne will be involved. Um, I think out of anyone to kind of come in who hasn't been involved so far is probably Rugby Brady, um, just considering his experience um, throughout the years. And I know he hasn't played a huge pile, but I think he seems like a Mick McCarthy kind of, if you like to call it a left field selection, um, throw him in there somewhere just because he, he's good from set pieces and, and he probably would do a job wherever he is played. Um, I fear that McLean will start. I don't want him to start. I'd mm-hmm. I'd love to see him never start for Ireland again. I just I just don't think he, he he's lost the kind of the buzz that he had for for yeah. a bit, um, which was coming on, uh, or which was just just the sheer determination um, and never say die attitude that he had. I think that's kind of evaporated, and I think he's just a bit of a liability um, yeah. at this point. So I I can't see much. Mix up from usual. Um, mm. Troy Parr definitely won't be involved. Whether he comes off the bench or whether he's even on the bench will, will, will be a surprise. Um, so it probably will be McGoldrick um, and Robinson up top. Um, so yeah, there, there's not a huge pile of optimism. Know, optimism is that the word? But I, I, <laughs> I definitely can't see, um, see some of the kind of the fresh faces there being yeah. involved. I'll um, tell you I, what, lads. I, I maybe to rope. I might. I, I'd be loath to kind of roll back on this a little bit, but to give McLean a little bit of credit, although Jesus, he's been in dire form for Ireland. <laughs> like in these situations, I do. I I don't mind him playing so much because it's going to be a cauldron. I'm actually going to the game. Absolute oh. score. We got a we got a box for the night. Yes, yes. Um, so so I'll have a few drinks there, and I'll probably give McLean dogs abuse um, from from the sidelines. But but uh, I, I think he's good in these games. I think he's he, he gets to the pitch of of the intensity. Like you know, he gets quick. He gets there quickly, and he knows what it's about. Um, and you know, weirdly, he can be a little bit of a match winner or a or a point um, leveler on the day. Um, so I don't really mind him starting here. I think it'd be a bit of a risk to throw Robbie Brady straight into the mix um, on, on the left. Um, and I don't, even though I think Mick does like Robbie Brady, um, I don't think he'll do it. I think he'll go. I think he'll go ultra conservative and play him clean. Um, and then everybody will just go spare mad for ninety <laughs> odd minutes on James McLean. Poor old James. I'll tell you, Roger, I can remember his name. Rob Little. He's the guy who ran away and left his wife for a young. 
and depends of the quality of the eggs. In the supermarket you have eggs class 1, class 2, class 3. And some are more expensive than others and some give you better omelets. So when, when the class 1 eggs are in Waitrose and you cannot go there, Real Madrid is not Barcelona, it's an office small team, have many problems. I want my players play with balls. We're on with Patrick Jennings from the BBC to talk about Kosovo's remarkable rise for a nation that's played its first competitive game of football as recently as 2016. Thanks for joining the show, Pat. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, I, I guess to begin, I'm not sure a lot of people would have taken much heed of Kosovo's jump into competitive international football. What were the steps that took them as far as this point since the country's independence just over 10 years ago? It doesn't seem like it's been uh, always a, a very smooth process. No, that's right. I mean, um, it's interesting. The, um, the the kind of the plans for um, making the national team um, really began almost uh, the day before uh, independence, independence was declared in February 2008. They, the day before, they installed Fadil Vokri, um, who is a, the kind of... Um, He's, I like to call him like the Kosovo and Diego Maradona. He was uh, the subject of an article that I wrote in September about Kosovo and their journey to where they are now. And he was like the kind of the figurehead for their uh, the momentum they got for international recognition in, in the football side of things, but also kind of diplomatically as well. So the two things were very linked together. Um, you know, he was installed in this position as president of the Football Federation of Kosovo the day before the country declared independence. And since then, um, you know, it was really a labour of love for him and the people who were around him and his son, Gramot, who I interviewed for the article as well. <clears throat> but, you know, and tragically, he died last year. Um, he suffered a heart attack at the age of 58. So, you know, he's not around to see where they are now. And like you say, they've come such a long way in that really very short space of time that they now very realistically could qualify for the Euro- Euros next summer. They're definitely um, there on the periphery. Um, I know they're playing Czech Republic on Thursday night um, in a game which, I mean, whoever wins that will probably be a favourite to go ahead with uh, with England in qualification. Um, off the top of most people's heads, they're probably not aware of many Kosovo players, but you have to remember that the likes of Jordan Shakiri um, and Granit Xhaka and a couple of more high-profile players around Europe um, are of Kosovan descent. Did they play any bit of a role in terms of getting Kosovo granted access to UEFA or even in ter- changing their um, their allegiance to Kosovo? Well, it's interesting. It's kind of, um, I guess, a totally new thing really for the football authorities to deal with. So when they, the way their way in really, I mean, at the beginning when Kosovo first started to try and move into the international football scene, they could only play, um, you know, friendlies behind closed doors that weren't really officially Kosovan football teams. It was all very kind of under the radar. They played mostly like they played friendlies against fellow unrecognized states and what have you. 
Um, so uh, also they played quite a few funny matches with Albania because there's a very strong ethnic and cultural link there between the two countries. Um, so they weren't, I suppose, if you were a footballer, like I remember around 2014, they were given permission to play um, official friendly matches now, but they weren't only allowed to display a certain, they, they could only play, um, they, they, sorry, they could, they could only play without their national symbols on their shirts and without national anthems at that stage. Um, but it felt like progress. And they, uh, Fadil Vokri, uh, the president and the people around him, were always on the lookout for good young players that they could get involved with the team. And one person they were trying to um, encourage to come on side with them at that time was Adnan Yanisai, who was at Manchester United at the time. Um, mm-hmm. That didn't work out. And I think the same thing possibly kind of happened with players like uh, Jadon Shakiri and Granit Xhaka and Granit's brother Taulan. Granit plays for Switzerland and Taulan plays for Albania. You know, it's kind of, it's this new, you know, both brought up in Switzerland, it's kind of the way that Europe is now, the way that the world is now. Um, so it's it's kind of, it's it, it's interesting that when um, Kosovo were then given full recognition by UEFA in FIFA in 2016, in theory, I think those players might have been allowed to change allegiance. They They could have done, but it was never really made totally public what the rules were at the time so i think there was a little bit of a fudge by fifa on the on the issue because switzerland were very angry about the possibility of losing like imagine lose england lost like raheem sterling and harry kane you know like two of their best players um it would be really bad news for them so obviously switzerland were kind of opposed to that um so it's difficult really to know how much they wanted to those players those kind of more high profile um players um but all the same the Kosovo team at the moment have got some really exciting players um it's a shame actually you you mentioned the game against the Czech Republic it's definitely going to be like who wins that game really is probably going to be in second place uh, well almost yeah almost totally sure um and it's a shame that Kosovo have They'll be missing their top scorer, Vedat Marici, who he scored four goals in qualifying so far. If you haven't seen him play, he's very exciting. He's like a very, very, he's like a sort of cross between Andy Carroll and the Incredible Hulk. He's like super, super <laughs> strong and solid up front. And he's also got this kind of spiritual, I mean, it sounds a little bit um, over the top perhaps to call it a spiritual quality, but he does he kind of tends to have this galvanizing effect on those around him because he gets so involved in play. He's hustling and bustling around um, and he's going to be injured for the match and against the match um, and the match against England. So probably I think maybe up front for them instead would be Milot Rashica, who is another really probably the most talented of the team at the moment. Um, And, you know, he's another one who he played, twice for Albania before switching allegiance, um, but another young, exciting footballer. So, you know, there's even without the likes of Shakiri and and Jaka, who, you know, theoretically could have come on board with the side because of their the family ties to the region, they still done really well uh, and they still have very exciting proper players. Patrick, it's uh, Phil here, uh, just to kind of further develop the idea of uh, the current squad that Kosovo have um, 
when Kosovo competed in their first qualification campaign, which was for the 2018 World Cup, they finished last with no wins and a minus 21 goal difference. Uh, but more recently, they're, they're after winning uh, their group in League D of the Nations League. And as we know, they're, they're, they're right in the mix for automatic qualification. And um, What's changed in such a relatively short period of time that you've, you're going from 10 losses from 10 and a minus 21 goal difference to um, only losing... Uh, the only qualification game they've lost this time around so far has been to England. <clears throat> um, has, has there been a particular change in, in the team? Has it just been they've come together more, had more time to bed together? Or is it the, the fruit bearing um, of all that work they, they'd done in, this, in the background beforehand to get to this point? Yeah, I, I guess it's a mix of things, really. It is pretty mad. Like you say, They that first ever official, fully competitive match they played in um, in 2016, the first fixture in that 2018 World Cup qualifying campaign, they drew 1-1 away to Finland, and it was the only point they got in the whole campaign. I think probably, um, you know, it's a, the obvious and, and probably the most um, compelling change in that time was the manager. So, um, you know, after the end of the qualifying campaign in March 2018, they appointed the Swiss uh, Bernard Chalonde, um, who, you know, isn't like a massive name in management or anything. You know, I think he'd, he'd had quite a long and sort of almost journeyman-like career in Switzerland and he was manager of Armenia for a short time. He managed Switzerland under 21s for about six years, I think. Um, but he seems like a really clever guy and a really calming influence on the team and i've heard a lot of people who um you know from kosovans themselves from journalists and fans one criticism they had of their team and i suppose that could have some it has its positive sides too as well but one criticism they had was that they played with too much passion so if things were going wrong or you know there was some kind of event in the match that meant they were really under pressure and things weren't going their way, then they would lose their heads and they would really struggle to kind of reassess and regroup and, you know, continue to, to play to the qualities that they had. And I think it probably helps to an extent, perhaps, having this, you know, Swiss manager in charge who's obviously a very good professional and has, you know, um, an attachment to the team. He wants them to be successful, but he maybe wants them to be successful in a slightly different way, maybe a kind of more strategic way. Um, he um, does seem to be very, very calm presence in the match. I mean, I went to watch Kosovo play at home to the Czech Republic in September when they won 2-1. And they were really impressive, like um, really, really good. And everyone around me was saying, no, no, this is poor for them. They've been playing really badly uh, here. But Chalon throughout was just there on the sidelines. He seemed to be just kind of really cool and calm, even when they started to turn things around and everybody around them was getting carried away. All the subs were off the bench and running around and all the injured players who were there uh, on crutches sort of hobbling around as well. Um, so, you know, it's it's a shame. I mean, going back to Fadil Vokri again, he... Vokri was the man who appointed Chaland, and I think that perhaps there was a friendship there um, before uh, Chaland became the manager, um, because Vokri, you know, uh, he he spent quite a lot of time in Switzerland and lived when he lived in France was was quite often there. Um, so it's just a real shame that uh, Fadil Vokri wasn't isn't around now to see what's happening because they have definitely taken on. 
a next step in their development and it's it's pretty it's pretty nice to see patrick um it's really great to have you on it, it, it's it's an interesting dynamic in terms of Kosovo being, I suppose, a new nation of sorts, and and the dynamic being that you've got you've got basically this large number of players who are playing for different nations who could also play for for Kosovo, and obviously you have that with Ireland and Northern Ireland, and you know, the breakup of, you know, of the union as sorts, like from going back to 1920 in terms of Ireland's breakaway from, from Great Britain. I mean, like, how does that affect people on the ground in Kosovo is, in terms of players not playing for Kosovo or wanting to come back to Kosovo? Is there a real nationalistic feel to it all? I mean, they're very, very, very patriotic and proud, as you would mm. imagine, of a nation that had to fight so hard for its independence and and now is still fighting hard for international recognition i mean it's still kind of a bit of a diplomatic battleground like the relationship with serbia uh is showing no signs of uh improvement there's never in the, you know uh, there's no sign of there being on the horizon mm. or the near horizon some kind of a settlement or a normalization of relations between the two um and you know for that reason it is something very, very special that they have this football team that is now performing well and something that you can take pride in on the international stage. There's, in terms of like the the idea of players and whether or not they're making a patriotic decision, it's difficult to say really. I mean, yeah. every time, I know Granite Jacker was in Pristina, the capital of Kosovo, I think it was in the summer after the end of the Premier League season, for some kind of event. And I think there's still a connection there with him and his family. Perhaps he still has some family there, I'm not sure. Um, but there's a huge amount of popularity for them, those players who've made it big, because they are seen as sons of this land who have gone on to achieve at the highest level. So how could you not be proud of that? I, d I never really got a sense that there was any kind of resentment for them not choosing to play for Kosovo, if that is indeed what they did. Um, I think as well, the other element to it, which like obviously Kosovo, its geographic location in the Balkans, it's an extremely, um, you know, bloody history for centuries and centuries and centuries and the cycles of uh, vengeance and counter-vengeance that have passed over the land, you know, over the centuries, a long, long time. So the resentments are much more deeply held and the... Um, the um, the ties of unity are perhaps even you know stronger. So Kosovo, in its relationship with Albania, um, you know historically, some Albanians believe that Kosovo should be part of a wider Albania, which is why we saw, if you remember, uh, when Albania uh, played Serbia, there were the, yeah. the incident of the drone that had Drones. the flag. Mm. So um, it's a very, very, very hot and delicate political issue. And this relationship between Kosovo and Albania means that for actually for some Kosovans, they kind of feel like they have two teams or they have two nations or, you know, they would like to be part of a greater Albania. It's not true of everybody. Um, so, for example, when I was in Pristina in September for this match against the Czech Republic, you would see quite a few Albania shirts 
or Albania flags um, as well. So, you know, it's um, it's interesting because I guess it really depends on on your family circumstances. Like any of these players who are now starring, like Rashica, could have played for Albania. You know, he could have continued to play for Albania, but he chose to play for Kosovo. Um, but you know, um, I, I don't. I never really got the sense that there was any kind of ill feeling towards anybody who, who had the opportunity but but hadn't. It's all very, as as far as I've seen, very positive feeling about the team. Mm. Uh, to it's kind of like to, I suppose to to go away from the the political element and back to the football. I mean, in terms of like your long term, in terms of Kosovo's long term prospects in international football for instance like the the league in Kosovo is 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 minuscule in comparison to even even some of the smaller leagues like even an Irish league um where where long term do do Kosovo expect to to maintain this sort of you know squad quality like do they have youth players coming through or or, or will it be a, a dependence uh, on on Albanian and and Swiss and and Serbian kind of nationalities. Do you know what I mean? Do, do you understand what I get? Absolutely. Yeah, it is going to be really interesting to see how that develops. Really, I mean, it, it's as well as it being a very damaged nation because of mm. all the conflict that it's experienced. It's a small nation as well. Like the population is about one point eight million. So. Um, you know, there's never going to be a huge pool. But then, of course, like you say, there's the diaspora from which they can draw um, and they you know, are doing that really successfully. Um, the league, the domestic league, the standard is very low. The uh, facilities aren't always excellent. Um, there are some um, young players who play in the um, Kosovan domestic league who play for the Kosovo's youth sides for the under-20s and under-21s and what have you. Um, there's actually a player who plays for Tooting and Mitchum, uh, who plays for the under 21s as well. Um, right. Yeah. So they are investing in all of this kind of stuff. And, you know, if you watch the match or the next home match against England on Sunday, you'll see the stadium is looking in very good condition. The Fadilvokri Stadium has his name. Um, and, you know, they're planning to build a, a bigger and uh, more modern stadium as well, which I think they've they've got a, the, the go-ahead for planning commission, what have you. Um, so I suppose it's, it's really a mixture of things. I think the standard of football in the country at the moment, you couldn't realistically expect to produce the kind of player, you know, be able to compete to um, uh, be able to compete for qualification at a major European, uh, major international tournament at the moment and everybody there says you know if you're 17 18 19 maybe 20 and still playing in that league then you're not going to be good enough and you if you haven't left at that age then really you you're not going to amount to very much in terms of you know being on the level with granite jack or, or shakiri so you know i suppose this is it it's continuing to draw on the the players that they have abroad and continuing to invest in the youth facilities and coaching and everything else that everybody kind of recognises as being important in that regard. Um, and now that they have more stability, and now that they have more more money coming into the country, hopefully with a growing economy, then you know it could go that way. 
Um, Pat will definitely be keeping a, a close eye on on the result Thursday night against the Czechs, um, and of course, depending on how that goes, it could make their game against England on Sunday night um, very interesting indeed. And there's kind of a nice contrast there with with England coming up to their um, 1,000 game um, against a, a pretty new nation in, in terms of fo- in footballing terms. Um, how shocked would you be if uh, if there was an upset there in Pristina on, on Sunday night? Not massively, actually. I mean, um, obviously England are, are going quite well, but I was um, I very much enjoyed the match in Southampton, although it was a great shame, I thought, that it wasn't played at Wembley, um, the first match between Kosovo and England. And, you know, they went ahead, albeit through a mistake, uh, very early, but they played with such spirit and, um, you know, they they are capable of doing it. They They could, they could pull off a shock. I think the bigger match for them, really, of course, is Thursday, because realistically... You know, mm. if they're going to get through um, automatically, then that's how they have to do it. But you know, um, even if they don't, even if they don't, uh, like you said before, the from the the Nations League performance, they guarantee the playoff, which uh, you know is pretty much nailed on to be against their neighbours from the south, North Macedonia, and the other tie, the other semi final in that uh, bracket of the UEFA Nations League playoff is uh, Belarus and Georgia. So you have to say. If we're if we're talking about them as possibly being capable of, I don't know what what a, a shock result be would maybe you know could they win could they draw um, against England, you know if we're saying they're capable of doing that then they should definitely be capable of beating any of those two teams. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's um, I would really <laughs> I would kind of really like to see them do it because there is such a. Um, great feeling towards um, England and Britain, especially in and America, because of the role that those countries played, especially in um, in the conflict towards the end of the 90s there. Mm. Um, already, I think there's lots of flags out and banners welcoming England fans and what have you. Um, it will be a really great occasion, I'm sure, um, even if they don't get the result that they're looking for, because like you say, with that point of the kind of England's thousand game and, and Kosovo's, you know, very young footballing history, um, it is it is a very it will be a very um, very special occasion for sure. Great stuff, Pat. Um, we'll definitely be looking forward to that. Um, so it's a really interesting story. So uh, thanks for joining the podcast tonight. Oh, thank you very much.